Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this hybrid event at the London School of Economics and Political Science. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the director of LSE, and I am very pleased, especially pleased this evening, to welcome Sebastian Malaby, who is here both to our, and introduce him to both our online and in-person audience here in the Sheikh Zayed Theatre. Sebastian Malaby is the Paul Volcker Senior Fellow in International Economics at the Council of Foreign Relations. And more importantly, he's an associate of the Systemic Risk Center here at the London School of Economics. He's been a contributor to the Financial Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and many, many other publications and the author of five amazing books, including the New York Times bestseller, More Money Than God, Hedge Funds and the Making of a New Elite. Now, Sebastian and I this evening are gonna be dis uh, discussing his new book called The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Art of Disruption. In the first part of the event, I'm gonna ask him a set of questions uh, and that will go on for about 45 minutes. And then we've got plenty of time for questions from the audience. Uh, in person as well as online. I'll probably start with a few questions from the online audience and you can get my attention in the usual way. Uh, and my colleagues here will be filtering questions from the online audience for me. Now, just a few practicalities uh, for Twitter users. The hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Power Law. The event is being recorded and we'll try and make this available online very soon. Uh, and uh, for our online audience, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of the screen uh, and they will be submitted to me. Let us know your name and affiliation because uh, we're particularly keen to hear from students and alumni around the world. Uh, and for those of you in the audience, when you raise your hand, there are mobile mics and we will get them to you. We're also having a book signing after this, uh, just outside. Uh, Primrose Hill Books will be, uh, has set up and is giving a discount on the book. It'll be for 20 pounds this evening. So if you buy it now, you'll get it for less. And you'll also get Sebastian's signature on it, which will make it even more valuable. So with that, let me uh, turn to, uh, to a discussion about the book. So this book is, is wonderful in many ways, but it's neither a textbook about the, or an academic book about the venture capital industry, uh, but it's actually a wonderful series of stories about how the industry has evolved over the years. So I'm gonna ask you at first, just to summarize, uh, how you became interested in the subject and how you actually went about researching and writing this book. Thank you, Manoush. And it's great to be back at NSC IRL, as they say. Um, so two things drew me into this subject of writing about venture capital. Um, the first thing is that, you know, it's an intellectual mystery. How does this work? All kinds of investment involve bets on an uncertain future. But this is really the distillation of that uncertainty because there are no quantitative guideposts whatsoever at the beginning. If you think about the first thing you might do when you value a public asset, well, you would discount the cash flow. In early stage investing, there's no cash flow to discount. You might work out the price to book ratio. Well, what about if there's no book value? Because all you have in this company is two-legged mammals who walk into your office with a dream. Um, all of the things that you think about with public investing, you know, the fact that the distribution of returns uh, when you invest in public stocks is fairly much normal. In other words, you know, way out of the normal uh, events happen, but they are rare. In venture investing, it's only the tail that you care about. It's only the extreme event that matters. So it's an intellectual mystery about how you allocate capital under that kind of uncertainty. And I wanted to get my head around that. And the other thing is the sort of social impact because venture capital is clearly the most exciting kind of finance right now. Um, if you just think about one statistic on that, uh, much less than 1% of startups that form in the United States every year 
get venture capital funding. It's, it's less than half percent actually. Um, but if you look at the market cap of all the companies that went public in the US over the last 25 years, three quarters of the market cap comes from VC-backed companies. So an enormous amount of value is coming from a tiny number of dollars. And just that the sheer power of this type of finance, the way that clearly ex-VC backed tech companies um, are, you know, have, have become the drivers of the S&P 500, whether it's Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, what have you. Um, just the, that, that social power uh, was the second thing that drew me in. And tell us a little bit about how you went about doing the research, because venture yeah. capitalists are sort of famously secretive, uh, and they don't want to share the secrets of their special sauce that drives the success. How did you, how did you learn about them? Yeah, well, there's always this um, challenge with the books that I take on, um, or at least normally, anyway. Uh, certainly hedge funds was a challenge, they're pretty secretive. And um, that's why these things take me five years. <laughs> <laughs> because you sort of have to get to know the people who might know the people who might introduce you to the real people. Uh, and um, then if you do it right, by the end of it, you've spoken to so many people that the real people that you haven't yet spoken to start to call me uh, <laughs> because they don't want to be left out of the story. <laughs> but at the beginning, you know, you have to, it's difficult. So you start by people that um, have been fans of my past books, uh, who know people in Silicon Valley. I was lucky that one of them had been chair of the um, board of Stanford. Of course, that was a home run to begin with. So, you know, 15 emails from that guy and I got to see the founder of Yahoo, the fan, you know, lots of people. And then every time you see somebody, you say, uh, do you think you could introduce me to two more? And then you, you build your network that way. And each time I go into a meeting, I make sure that I've read every single public source about that person and have digested and sort of constructed a timeline of their career and have formulated good questions that sort of both telegraph seriousness that I've done the homework and seriousness that the book will be properly researched. So if you can win people's confidence, that request for two or further interviews at the end normally meets with acceptance and, and you build a network, but it's slow. Interesting. That's very good advice for general research strategy <laughs> for all those in the room. Um, so this is the LSE. There's bound to be quants in the room. I suspect there are quite a few quants around this room. Uh, tell us a little bit about the power law. What does that mean? And why is that so central? Why is it the title of the book? And why is it such a central concept in venture capital? Sure. So um, the best way to explain this in, in lay terms, I know this isn't really a lay audience, but still, um, is, is to say what it isn't to be in with. So the normal distribution is fairly easily understood. That's the one with the big bell curve in the middle, so that nearly all the observations are clustering around that average uh, observation. The median observation is the same as the mean observation. And so to make that concrete, uh, the average American male, uh, adult male, is five foot ten inches tall. Uh, something like two thirds of all the men are within three inches of that. Uh, and to find somebody who's way off that five foot ten mean is sort of somewhat unusual. And the effect of that is that even if you imagine an NBA star who is six foot eleven, who is sitting in a more crowded lecture theater than this. Uh, and decides that he's bored by the dull lecturer who's just written a book and wanders out and leaves the auditorium, the departure of the six foot 11 inch person won't actually change the average height uh, of the residual men in the room because, you know, everybody else is clustering around. So, so that the, the, the tail event can basically be ignored. Now, think of wealth distribution in the United States. If Jeff Bezos walks out of the back of the room because he's bored with me, your average income or wealth is going to collapse, right? One person can totally skew the distribution. And whereas stock market investing is basically not quite a normal distribution of returns, but pretty close, uh, venture returns are utterly not normal. In other words, they are power law distributions where maybe 10% of the investments, the startups that you might invest in are driving 80 or 90% of the total value created by the investments. 
And I chose this as the title because it's sort of the secret source to unlock the whole sector. Once you understand that a few outlier bets in a venture capital portfolio are going to drive nearly all of the returns, you understand why venture capitalists take these crazy risks. They say things like, well, we're going to back flying cars. And you go, well, that's stupid. I mean, that's just ridiculous. But now if we rephrase that assertion and say, well, we're going to back a startup which will overthrow the incumbent hotel companies on the basis that normal people will have total and absolute strangers sleep on their couches or in their spare rooms. And that's Airbnb and it worked. So, you know, it's the improbable idea which is going to scramble how things are done at the moment uh, that makes all of the returns. And once you understand this power law thing, you understand why venture capitalists bet on those crazy ideas. So one of the... Uh... One of the most interesting parts of the book are the characters, obviously, and you describe these very unusual characters who, who are these venture, invent, uh, venture investors uh, very well. And you've written about many characters in finance, central bankers, hedge funds, international financial institutions. How would you describe the differences in the personality types in these very different parts of the financial sector? Well, it's quite easy to make the distinction with central bankers or people at international financial institutions because central bankers and IFIs would like to have stability. Macro stability is what the IMF is targeting, not instability. Whereas fundamentally, you know, both hedge funds and, and, and especially venture capital are about instability. If you think about you know, that classic 1950s book, Organization Man. Mm -hmm. um, these are really the disorganization people, quite often men, but anyway, uh, uh, disorganization man. And um, so let's make a comparison, which is a bit more subtle between hedge funds and venture capital. These are both boutique money management operations, uh, both classed as alternatives by allocators of money. So what's the difference in personality? Well. Hedge funders can be pretty introverted. Um, really, the hedge fund business is about making an intellectual call on a market inefficiency that you perceive. And you, know, you don't necessarily have to talk to that many people about it. In fact, it's probably not smart to spread your idea too much. Um, and so the archetypical macro investor, Lewis Bacon, when he got successful and rich and bought a private island, the joke was, he was so insular already, you know, this figure cloistered behind a bunch of screens that the private island made no difference. Now, venture capitalists are totally the opposite, right? It's all about networking and connecting with others. And, you know, in venture capital, the series A deal will be led by one firm, but there'll probably be a syndicate with another one or two firms in it. Um, then the series B will be led by somebody else, series C by somebody else. And so it's all about a kind of collaborative, uh, you know, what they call it co-opetition, both cooperative and competitive. Um, but the job of a venture capitalist is to get up in the morning and, and meet somebody for breakfast and have 14 cups of coffee or perhaps, you know, matcha tea or something uh, before they go to bed, because it's about finding the next entrepreneur you might invest in, finding the five engineers that your last entrepreneur will want to hire for their first hires, finding maybe a big customer, if it's an enterprise software company that needs to sell into a business, you know, the venture capitalist often makes that introduction. Um, and then, of course, prospecting for new deals. And it's all about meeting people, greeting people, schmoozing people, getting their confidence, putting them together, creating teams, breaking up teams. It's, that's what VC is. So it's a highly extrovert type of business. Very interesting. So this business uh, started off highly concentrated in California around Silicon Valley. Um, but you write in the book about how many of those firms are branching out into Asia and Europe. Uh, so first, why, why the Valley? What was so special about it? And why did this industry grow there first? Second, what can they export to the rest of the world? And third, how will the industry change as it goes much more global and it spreads and how will it adapt to local circumstances? So why the valley? When I began my research, there were kind of different theories people threw at me as to why Silicon Valley became 
the innovation hub that survived multiple different, you know, technological shifts from, you know, the semiconductor to the personal computer to networking to the internet to you know, social media, all of these things appear to be concentrated in the same geography. Um, and some people say, well, it's Stanford. It's really Stanford Valley. <laughs> and if you know the history, that's nonsense, because actually at the period when Silicon Valley was named Silicon Valley in the 70s, MIT was clearly stronger. And the sort of additional theory that it was Stanford plus Berkeley is nonsense because Harvard was stronger than Berkeley. So it's not, you know, the universities are great, you need universities, but actually the Valley didn't have the best combination in that department. Then people say, well, it's about defense contracts. You know, the government was buying um, tech in the form of defense tech, and that kickstarted the Silicon Valley. Again, if one knows the history, this is just nonsense because most of the military industrial complex contracts went to the MIT, Lincoln Labs, Raytheon was a, was a defense company that spun out of Lincoln Labs. The whole, that whole network, you know, Vannevar Bush was the dean of the MIT School of Engineering who moved to Washington to be the defense, the tech advisor to FDR in the war. So that's just not, not true um, either. Um, and then people say, well, it's the climate in Silicon Valley. That's nonsense. I mean, obviously, you know, tech people <laughs> who are coding all day are quite happy to be in a basement and often don't like the sun. So, um, you know, the truth is, uh, I'm, and I'm, you know, make this argument at some length in the book, the real secret source about Silicon Valley was in fact, and it's not about the invention because lots of the inventions come from other places, but then they're commercialized in the Valley. They're commercialized in the Valley because the nature of the venture capital there underwrote the risk involved in creating a startup. It's not that, you know, people breathe the Silicon Valley air and there's something magical in it, which makes them entrepreneurial. It's that, venture capitalists come to them and say, I hear you've got a good idea. I know you've got a safe job at Google, but if you'd like to start your own company, I'm gonna raise so much money, it's not gonna feel risky in the least. And then they're going to go to the first engineers you want to hire, and they're gonna to say to the engineers, you know, I understand you feel it's dangerous to join a startup, and they do fail quite often, but you know, I'm funding a few startups every year, and if you join this one on my recommendation and it fails, I'll find you another job in about half a second. This is why Eric Schmidt was willing to join Google as CEO, even though Larry and Sergey might have booted him out because they were very argumentative PhD students who didn't really like older people. Uh, and Eric told me, you know, he wouldn't have done that job if it hadn't been for the VC who said to him, Eric, if you do this job, I will get you another one if you need it. So it's the venture capital that creates the risk-taking and because it underwrites the risk and can that be exported yes it can and you know i went to china in my research and i looked at why the digital economy took off in china and every single early digital chinese company whether it's sina sohu or netease whether it's china you know alibaba baidu tencent ctrip all of them took american venture dollars and had American venture lawyers to incorporate them. And so for example, the idea of using employee stock options to compensate early employees was this American import into China, which wouldn't have been possible under Chinese law. In fact, you couldn't translate stock option into Chinese when this began with Alibaba. Indeed, stock itself, public equity, uh, was a novel idea in China because the Shanghai and Shenzhen stock exchanges were only opened in 1990. So mainland China, not counting Hong Kong, essentially didn't have an equity culture of any kind, but this was brought in by the VCs. And I think that shows you that they can do the same in Europe. They can come to Europe and that's happening right now. Um, and so they can bring their own methods. You article in the Financial Times this week, arguing yes. that Europe is the new frontier. Say something about that. Sure, so I mean, you know, Europe has lots of smart, educated, computer coders. It's got a big market, could be, you know, a bit more seamless, but it's still a big market. Um, it's got a lingua franca in the form of English. So if you go to the Spotify headquarters in Stockholm, you'll find people from 55 different countries, but they're all speaking English. Um, and it's got the, the basics of, of a good tech sector, but it's never really until recently had successful tech startups until sort of 
Skype a little bit and then Spotify in a much bigger way. And the reason people always said was, well, you know, Europe is just risk averse. And I've, as I've just explained, it doesn't have to be risk averse. If you've got the proper kind of venture capital, the risk will be underwritten and that problem will go away. And that's what we're seeing now with the arrival of companies like Sequoia from Silicon Valley, which are now setting up shop in London, it's going to transform the risk, uh, sort of the risk appetite uh, amongst entrepreneurs. And I'm fairly convinced that we're going to see the tech sector flourish in Europe. So taking off from that point, so you, you write about the early venture capitalists and you write about some of the current ones. We're obviously at a moment of great technological change, particularly post-pandemic and the, the massive scope for digital uh, development. What other big changes do you see coming over the course of the decades your work covers? What, 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 yeah, what else do you, do you think? So one big thread in the story is the way that the balance of power between the entrepreneur and the capitalist changed. Uh, so right at the beginning, venture capital was a new invention and therefore capital was scarce and therefore the capital provider had a lot of leverage. And so Arthur Rock, the kind of founding father of West Coast Venture Capital would routinely demand 45% of the equity in the startup that he was funding. That was in the 60s. By the 70s, it went down to about a third. By the 90s, it was with Google's financing in 1999, it was down to 25%. And then go forward another five years to Facebook's founding and it was down to uh, a tw uh, one eighth, 12%. Um, so you go from 45% to 12% over this history that I'm telling. And that's basically just because capital became plentiful and because actually software companies don't require that much capital. I think that's a natural and fine progression. I would just make one caveat about it, which is that the template of financing Facebook is not the right template for financing a hardware company. Hardware companies are more capital intensive. You need more money. If you're going to do batteries for, you know, electric vehicles or lots of other, you know, clean tech types of project, uh, or if you're going to do, you know, health sciences, um, medical robotics, uh, all of which is actually flourishing a bit. It gets us attention in software, but it's very important and it's growing. Uh, those kinds of deal require the VC to get more equity because the VC is going to have to provide more capital. Understood. So in many ways, um, venture capital is less about evaluating traditional business and financial metrics, as you said at the beginning, and much more about networking and connections and bridging capital idea and ideas, founders and supporters. Will the impending death of cities and workspaces, physical workspaces after the pandemic, has that been overstated? And how will venture schmoozing, as you called it, uh, work in an online, digital, physically distant world? Do they have to change their business models? Yeah, so um, like a lot of things coming out of the pandemic, the answer is kind of it'll be a hybrid. Um, I mean, the irony has been for a while that um, Silicon Valley had created all these distance communication tools, you know, from email to social media to Slack to all those sort of things, Dropbox and other collaborative online tools. And yet the producers of cloud computing were still insisting that they had to be all clustered in Silicon Valley and have physical meetings. And that, that was a bit of a contradiction. And as soon as the pandemic hit, what happened is that all the pitch meetings just went online mm -hmm. and took place over Zoom or Zoom equivalents. And, you know, as you know, there's been a total frenzy in venture deal making in the past two years, pandemic notwithstanding. So it appears to be possible to agree on term sheets and, you know, evaluate entrepreneurs uh, without a face-to-face -face meeting. I think though, there's going to be a correction now. I mean, clearly, massive central bank stimulus contributed to asset bubbles all over the place, and uh, not least in tech. And so I think late stage venture, the growth capital rounds uh, are going to have to be repriced. And uh, some people will lose money. And I think maybe we'll discover that some of these rapidly done online deals were done too rapidly. <laughs> um, so I think there'll be a mixture, but um, you know, I don't know how that will pan out, the balance between 
face-to-face -face and the benefits of that and the convenience of distance communication. So let me take the critical perspective uh, around venture. Some would say that this approach to investing is highly distortionary. It encourages investors to put money into firms that have no real cash flows uh, and that kind of solid, less flashy businesses that deliver things that people really need are much more important than this kind of unicorn hunting that goes on in the venture industry. And that they've actually encouraged the creation of these sort of monopolistic platforms uh, that are extracting huge rents from society. What would you, what's your response to that critique? Look, I think it's a serious critique. Um, if you think about the way that early stage startups work, or even in middle stage, um, they are being subsidized by the investors. The investors give them lots of money and don't necessarily expect to see a profit from the company for several years, so long as they're growing very fast. And so if you take something like, you know, ride sharing, um, the history of Uber and Lyft, how long did it take them to make a profit? A long time, I mean, mm. 10 years. Yeah. And in the meantime, effectively what that meant was that venture capital was subsidizing me every time I called a, a Lyft or an Uber, you know, so I was only paying 80% of the cost and some nice VC was taking up, and thank you very much. Um, but of course, if you are the incumbent taxi operator, that doesn't feel so good. And it's a bit like dumping, right? If you're, trade, if you're in, a, in a trading relationship, one country subsidizes its state-backed industrial champions, they export at a loss, dump their products in another market, the other guys in the other market are going to say, wait a minute, that's not fair. So it's a serious argument. But at the same time, I think you've got to reckon on the fact that the incumbents for example, the incumbent taxi companies have their own advantages, right? They have um, relationships with the uh, municipal government normally that would quite like to protect uh, the taxi drivers because the taxi drivers cooperative or union or whatever it is, is you know paying for the mayoral race or something like that. Um, there are all kinds of safety regulations that can be invoked to present the uh, new entrance as being dangerous and all that. So I think that incumbents have their own um, advantages. They don't have to advertise because they're well-known, all that stuff. So in a, in a sort of theoretical way, if venture capital dollars were utterly heedless of the need to make a profit ever, yes, that would be massive dumping mm. at the expense of incumbents and one would worry. Um, if there's a bit of dumping, that probably just balances out the playing field against the incumbent advantage. Let's say for the sake of argument that in periods of very plentiful capital, there's a bit of dumping and it's probably a little bit too much. What's the policy response to that? I mean, I think it's quite difficult to, for a regulator to be saying, oh, I've just spotted that the bubble is not merely a little bit emerging. It's now a properly established bubble. So the dumping has reached, I don't think you can, I mean, that's a pretty difficult thing to do. Mm. You know, as a former central banker, how tough it is to call bubbles. Um, and so I would say that um, we probably are best advised to accept this disruption, um, uh, knowing that in the end, the startups and the challengers do need to earn a profit. They can't carry on subsidizing consumers forever. Um, and if you just, uh, I don't know if anybody here has looked at the price of how Ubers have changed recently. I think they've gone up a lot, uh, giving the old guard a chance to fight back. Yeah. I mean, I think the other question is, you know, the, the question for regulators isn't to regulate the venture capitalists, but it's to regulate the markets in which they're operating. So say, making sure that the, the taxi market is working efficiently or that there is genuine competition in the retail market and so on. And so finding ways to make sure that the markets are operating properly is probably a better approach than trying to regulate yeah. the operation of the venture capitalists. So you mentioned um, the risks around the massive increase in venture capital in recent years and the likely need for a correction in the period ahead as monetary policy tightens. Um, the market's now flooded with players. 
many new new players are entering and trying to get into the venture capital space. Um, and the power law function encourages everybody to make these big winning bold bets. Um, and yet there's a real risk of a lot of people making the wrong bets and losing money. Uh, are we at risk of moving into a kind of a, more of a, lot, a lottery than a, a well-oiled machine that's really choosing profitable investments? Yeah, this, is that okay? Is that just the price of innovation? So the lottery risk um, is, is, I think, worth exploring because, you know, anytime you have this power law distribution where somebody makes 10 bets and, you know, eight or possibly even nine do nothing much, and then the 10th one makes 40 times their capital, mm -hmm. um, it does look rather like a fluke. Um, but this is the nature of startups. And I mean, I should say that this power law operates at the level of the investment fund. It also operates for all startup businesses, whether they're tech or non-tech. Most startups go nowhere and a few succeed. So there's sort of power law in startup businesses. There's power law effects in certain technologies and you get a kind of Moore's law thing where a technology doubles in power every couple of years. You get network effects from internet based things where uh, as Bob Metcalf, a technologist in the 70s and 80s pointed out, the value of the network rises as the square of the number of people on the network. So that's another kind of exponential in this world. Um, so everything is kind of building on each other to present, pr produce these, these portfolios where there is one thing that just skyrockets and, and most things you know, go nowhere, but it doesn't mean it's luck. Right? There's a difference between you know, an investor who comes along and faces this power law distribution and approaches it without skill uh, uh, and somebody else who comes along and approaches it with skill. And that difference shows up over time when um, one company can produce power law, I mean, sort of successful re returns in the face of the power law that are sustained over 15 years. Um, so I, I think, I think there is skill, it's not just a lottery. Um, of course, in a bubble, uh, everybody looks clever. And I suspect there will be a shakeout uh, coming out of this cycle. Okay. So let me ask you a question about the demographics of this industry. Um, you note in the book, it's largely concentrated in a relatively small, unusual place with a pretty unrepresentative group of people, white, male, well-educated in Silicon Valley, usually pretty tech-oriented. Um, why is that? And what are the risks around that? Do we, will, you know, is there, are there risks around groupthink and monoculture and clubby behaviors and, and exclusion of people and ideas that might not fit that, that pattern? Yeah, so in Silicon Valley, um, if you look at all the uh, investing partners at venture capital shops, only 16% are women. Um, uh, you know, if you could benchmark that against any other very skilled industry, whether it's finance, that, that is very, very low indeed. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, and then if you look at the number of investors who are black investors, it's 3%. Again, very, very low indeed. Uh, so there is a problem. And I think it does matter because an industry which is, you know, purporting to invent the future for all of society ought to look a bit more like society. Um, uh, and, you know, to cite one illustration of that, it's not just a piety, I think it's a really a real point. Um, uh, my uh, house magazine at home, The, the Economist, uh, <laughs> um, uh, told a, uh, found a great example of this. The oximeter, if I'm pronouncing that right, the, the device you put on your finger to measure your oxygen level, um, was used during COVID at the early period to, to figure out how much your oxygen level was down and therefore whether you deserved a slot in the intensive care department. What they hadn't figured out was that this oximeter was designed for people with white skin. If you had black skin, it was going to produce a skewed reading because obviously it works by shining light through your skin. And so African-Americans were being systematically denied, you know, intensive care unit beds when they needed it based on their health condition. 
that's just one example. If you make the technology without a kind of broader view of inclusiveness, it's a problem. Um, so I think, you know, they're gonna have to do better. I think the good news is that they sort of get it. Um, I think this problem arises because in a world where there are not quantitative metrics to make judgments um, about what to invest in, you fall back on heuristics about sort of your gut feeling about people and then that leaves you wide open to unconscious bias. Um, so I think there has to be a conscious effort to fight it. I tell a story in my book about one VC partnership, Kleiner Perkins, a very famous one, that tried to do better in terms of hiring women. And they systematically went out and they hired you know, several uh, accomplished uh, women to be investors. But what they failed to do is get around to actually then changing the culture of the partnership. So they hired smart women and then they wound up with these women being you know, subject to sexual harassment. There was a harassment suit. Uh, and all these smart women basically left and started their own VC partnerships and did very well, thank you very much, but they were unable to do well inside the culture. So um, I tell that story in some detail and I hope that, uh, I hope that they do better. You, know, you mentioned though in the book that the Asian venture capital industry is a bit more diverse. That's true. And just talk a little bit about that. I think China, um, at least sort of, and I, I don't have the perfect numbers on this, but I, I think at an elite level, China always seems to have been quite open to women, mm. right? You, you have a woman who was the head of the central bank two ago, right? Mm. Um, you have, uh, you know, a certain number of entrepreneurs I've met who are sort of at the at very top of, of Chinese business who are, who are women. Um, and when I went to China to interview venture capitalists without particularly sort of seeking out gender balance, it just happened I had gender balance because, you know, a lot of the most successful VCs in the story of China's emergence are women. Um, it's not true in, in the US. Okay, so uh, just one last question before I'm going to turn to the audience. So get your questions ready. Uh, I'm going to ask you an unrelated question, uh, which is uh, five years ago, you wrote an essay for The Guardian uh, chronicling the collapse of what was called the cult of the expert. Um, now, the pandemic has in many ways seen experts recover some of their glory and credibility epidemiologists, doctors, bioengineers, even some economists have, have regained, restored a bit of credibility. Has that changed your views at all about how expertise can play a role in our societies? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to make it clear that when I wrote that article, it was, I was um, describing what I observed to be a collapse of faith in experts. I was not celebrating <laughs> the collapse of faith in experts. So I'm delighted um, to the extent that experts have been making a comeback. I think that's a very good thing. I do continue to worry when, you know, figures like Donald Trump continue to exert that much of a sway uh, over the American electorate and the Republican Party. And it, it, I mean, without means to be partisan, just making a sort of point about people's susceptibility to things which are just empirically untrue. Um, you know, the fact that it's impossible to be a successful Republican politician at the moment, if you say that the January 6th break-in at the Capitol Hill was a real thing, I mean, that's pretty scary. So I think experts are still fighting a culture which is not entirely disposed to empiricism. And the pandemic had upsides for experts, but there were also there was yeah. a lot of complete rubbish that people believed around Absolutely. the pandemic. Yeah. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Okay, I'm going to turn to the audience. I'm going to take three questions together uh, from the audience here in the room. I'll come to Sebastian and then I'll take a few questions from the online audience. So uh, if you could raise your hand, tell me your name and 
your affiliation uh, and use the mic. Uh, and, and please feel free to remove your mask uh, when you ask the question, just so we can hear you. So I'll take the woman here. And I saw a hand up in the back. What was that? Okay, I'm gonna start with you and then I'll... I'll, I'll... Hello, uh, thank you very much for the talk. I wanted to ask you um, about artificial intelligence and database decision-making and venture capital. And from the people that you've been speaking to and your own um, overall look into that, what do you think and do you think it will ever maybe even replace um, venture capital, human decision-making and investors? And also um, how it decreases that risk or bets that you were talking about that um, venture capitalists take. Thank you. Okay, another one, this gentleman here. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm Alexander Skouris. I'm a master's student in international health policy. And I would like to ask you um, now, especially after the COVID era that uh, people are working remotely um, and all the changes that we have seen, do you believe that there is going to be another ecosystem that is going to be as powerful, powerful as Silicon Valley? Or You can take one more gentleman over here. Over the past few months, we've seen tech stocks take a huge hit. And I was wondering how this would affect valuations for tech companies, especially uh, that are seeking venture capital funding. Great. So uh, I'll go in reverse order. So the tech stocks being hit um, is a big problem if you are investing in what's called growth equity. So the company is already uh, a unicorn or nearly a unicorn. You're making writing a check for 50 million, 100 million and you're hoping for an IPO exit or an acquisition, you know, on a kind of one year, two year horizon, then obviously you're quite close to where you care about the public market valuation and a big correction in the public markets is gonna feed very quickly into your own position. And there are lots of examples of growth. First of all, growth investors are already rewriting the terms of deals that they'd sort of initialed um, just in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and secondly, um, there are lots of examples where, you know, late stage investors that back companies like Uber that then went through a lot of scam a scandal before the IPO, they lost a ton of money. So th those guys really care. Um, I think the early stage investors who are doing Series A, I mean, their exit is seven or eight years away. So they don't really have to think about the stock market today or next week or next year because in any way they're thinking longer than that. Who knows who, where the market will be, who the president will be, what, what China relationship will be, you know, nobody knows. All you care about is backing an entrepreneur who seems to have product market fit with a product. And, if it, and, and the valuation at that early stage is so low relative to what you hope it's going to be that I don't think it really changes the game. Um, now, another ecosystem to rival Silicon Valley, um, sure. I think so. I mean, China, in terms of dollars deployed um, in, you know, since about 2018, has come pretty close to uh, the US. So it shows it can be done. You need a big market. Uh, you need um, a sort of critical mass of um, technical people and people who can, you know, staff the startups. And you need VC. Um, and once you've got those things, uh, a system can take off. And I think that pretty much the secret source, which was kept in the valley until circa 2005. In 2005, it was taken to China, then it was taken to India, Southeast Asia. It's coming to Europe now. I think it's gonna spread all over. And so venture capital is gonna spread in three dimensions. It's gonna spread this geographical spread. It's gonna spread along the life cycle of the companies into this growth equity stage. And it's gonna spread in terms of different types of industry because almost everything now can be disrupted by software. So, I mean, that's another reason why I wanted to do this book. It's just like this exploding sector. Uh, and so I think you'll see Silicon Valley, you know, versions of it in India, versions of it in, uh, in Europe and so forth. And on AI, so I don't think that early stage investing is terribly susceptible to uh, disruption by AI. You know, in the classic, um, you know, advice you give to, you know, the kind of, cliche career advice. What do I do with my job prospects if AI is coming? You know, the answer is, you know, you do something which involves 
human contact and connection and sort of, um, yeah, human contact and connection. There's, there's another dimension, which anyway, but that's, that's a big part of it, kind of the judging of people, the EQ, not the IQ. And there's a big amount of EQ in assessing entrepreneurs and then mentoring and helping them as they start their companies. And I think that early stage venture will be un, 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 you know, unchanged. There's a more interesting debate about hedge funds and whether those, those will be um, totally displaced by AI. Clearly, robo-trading of various kinds has made a big inroad. I happen to think that you know, where you're looking for repeated patterns in markets and hedge funds, um, quants, quants are going to win and already are. Um, but where you're looking not for the rules of the game, but how the game might change, um, human intuition probably still has the edge. Um, so I think even in hedge funds, I don't think humans will be totally displaced and venture, certainly not. Interesting. Just as a sign of the times, uh, it used to be at the London School of Economics that the most popular student society was the Investment Banking Society. Today, it's the Entrepreneurship Society, which mm -hmm. I think is indicative. Uh, and uh, as a result of huge amounts of demand from our students in the careers office who no longer wanted careers in traditional large corporates, uh, we now have this huge uh, LSE incubator and accelerator supporting entrepreneurship of our students called LSE Generate and the Marshall Accelerator, which we're just starting, but it's, it is, um, it is clearly spreading as a, as a way of thinking and a way of thinking about finance and investment and, and, and business in the future. Let's turn to some of the online questions. So I will let you read those out. Okay, we'll start with a question from Donna Carmichael, PhD student at LSE. Public companies are under pressure to adopt sustainable business practices and report their impact on society and, in, and the environment in terms of ESG factors. PE firms are also under some ESG pressure regarding their portfolio companies. Do VCs care about ESG impact and disclosure? Should they? Okay. Maybe give me one more, give me another one. All right, we'll turn to Stefan Gazanov, LSE alumni. Did the research reveal any strong leading indicators or predictive proxies for venture success? And to what extent would you say that these variables are applicable to growth-oriented public equities in early stage, i.e. post-IPO development? Okay, let's take those two, Sebastian. Okay. So on ESG, um, the frank answer is no. They just don't care. Um, they care about, you know, creating disruptive companies that they think are going to produce products and services that people really want. And they're happy with that as a social mission. Um, on um, predictive proxies, um, I think there are predictive proxies, but they are very qualitative in early stage venture. So if you want to assess whether a brand new venture investor has a good chance of doing well, you look at things like, where do they come from? You know, did they, are they embedded in the network where the entrepreneurs are going to emerge from? And will they be able to spot these people early and then connect with them and be on their wavelength and have their capital accepted by them? Will they have good deal flow? Uh, and so if you have somebody who's a former entrepreneur, if you're talking about Silicon Valley, you know, the, the ideal profile is, you know, went to Stanford, it's the biggest network um, uh, and started a company or maybe worked at one of the big tech companies, Google or whatever, um, just know a lot of kind of A-listers of their own cohort in that area. So when the deals start emerging, they're going to hear about it first and they're going to be the trusted provider of capital. But that's not something you can apply to public um, stocks. Mm. Minush, I want to just actually say something about your accelerator. Mm. Um, because I actually think that the, there's a, a, a point I make in my book, which might appeal to the economists in the room, which is, you know, Ronald Coase won the Nobel Prize partly for this division between, you know, the company and the market. You know, there are times when it's more efficient to internalize uh, transaction costs in a company, other times you have arm's length transactions 
uh, through the market. And these are the two big institutions of capitalism. I think what we're seeing now with the emergence of startups and venture capital is that it's a third branch of capitalism that in some sense, a venture capital directed network of startups is like a company because the venture capitalist is like, is like a sort of strategic planner. The venture capitalist allocates capital here or there, but makes a decision about where the resources should flow. The venture capitalist will then move the human talent from this place to that place to go with the capital and will have sort of strategic vision about the map and the territory about which emerging protocol in the new routing technology is going to dominate. So the VC provides a lot of that kind of corporate type strategic vision. Mm. But then there's also a market test because the VC provides money for six or nine months. When you exhaust the runway of money, the startup goes back to the market and asks for another round of capital. And the startup will only get it if the price is right. If somebody's winning, it says there's a market signal. Mm. So it's that combination of corporate planning and market signals that make uh, VC driven networks so productive. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because you, that issue of capital allocation, which is at the heart of capitalism uh, in corporates, you know, that's what the treasurer does. The corporate treasurer is responsible for allocating capital across different investments. Um, but of course, unlike a VC, uh, they're usually making bigger bets in a much more constrained space in whatever sector that corporate happens to be in. Whereas what you're describing is something where they're making small bets across a very wide range of potential sectors. And so they achieve the risk diversification through many small bets that are broadly placed as opposed to how capital allocation often works in corporates, which is bigger bets more narrowly placed. And so the the, the way risk is managed is quite different, isn't it? It's also the hierarchy versus the network. I mean, a corporate is normally hierarchical. And when the corporate, when the you know finance director, whoever it is, decides to allocate some money over here to do a research project, there's, you know, there's some anchoring that goes on, right? Around, you know, do you admit after six months it's going nowhere? And the beauty of the venture structure, because it's stage by stage finance, and each stage, series A, series B, series C, is led by a different venture capitalist, a fresh set of eyes comes in and says, well, is this worth backing or not? And if the answer is they don't want to write the check, it's, it, it's just, it's more of a crowdsourced, networky, less hierarchical way of decision-making. Mm. I think it's more flexible and better at generating lots of iterative experiments. Interesting. Okay, let me come back to the audience. Uh, who would like to go next? I've got one here. And tell us who you are. Hello. Um, yeah, so my name is Abi Bakar, and I study maths at LSE. And I wanted to ask, uh, what's your opinion on venture capital kind of funneling money to the already existing tech monopolies within the, within the game? Because a lot of companies start and kind of as they're trying to grow, they end up having to actually give money to the, to the big uh, incumbents being Google, Facebook, etc. So do you think there's going to be a problem with those already at the top being a bigger monopoly in the future? And do you, or do you think there's a there's, um, venture capital kind of provides a scope for these companies to actually get disrupted? Mm. I'm going to take a couple more. Yes, one here. Hi, thanks for the talk. Uh, I'm Samantha, I'm studying law at LSE and I'm from Mexico. And I would like to, to ask you, um, how do you see or if did you do any research on the growth of venture capital in Latin America? Because I used to work like as a lawyer there and I think like the startups and the venture capital is growing, but I just wanted to know if you did a little bit of research of Latin America markets. Okay, I can take one more from the audience. This gentleman here. Uh, hi, my name is Sabir and I'm a third year law student at LSE. Um, and, you know, I, I saw how you mentioned kind of China as another potential beneficiary um, of kind of uh, VCs. Um, I was wondering how you kind of um, saw that uh, considering the kind of uh, crackdown on big tech um, and also the data localization laws. Um, and kind of more recently, we've seen that uh, the Indian tech stock market has actually been a beneficiary um, of this kind of um, 
regulation in China. So just kind of how you see that uh, panning out over the next few years. Okay, great questions. Um, so on the feces and the incumbents, I mean, one of the uh, arguments I like to make is that if you don't like big tech, uh, you should love small tech. Uh, because small startups backed by VCs are the best way of challenging the monopoly power of the established incumbents. Um, I mean, it's the kind of part of the cycle of, of creative destruction that the uh, challenger company of today may be the incumbent uh, in five or seven years from now. And at that point, you need more challengers to come along and make sure they don't get too complacent. And the good news is I think it's, it's actually more possible to challenge incumbents with new startups than we sometimes believe. So, you know, Facebook just reported its results last week. They were horrible. The uh, main uh, Facebook app uh, is, you know, basically peaked in terms of both, uh, it's both users numbers have fallen a little bit and the revenues have fallen, I think, quite a bit um, because Apple changed the, uh, the, the its privacy rules. Um, so, you know, Facebook is losing out um, and it's losing out partly to TikTok, a more recently backed uh, startup uh, owned by ByteDance, but backed by Sequoia, one of the VC companies that operates both in China and in um, Silicon Valley. Uh, it's challenged by Snap, another VC-backed upstart. Um, so I think you can, you know, you, small tech can challenge big tech. And when I look at the um, sort of uh, competition policy debate in the US especially, where the Biden administration is very keen on using antitrust to go after big tech more aggressively, I'm quite struck by how the amazing surge in venture capital dollars in the last two years is not part of their language, right? They, you can read Tim Wu. Tim Wu is the top competition advisor, very focused on tech in the White House. He wrote a book as an academic on competition law and what to do about big tech. There isn't a single mention of venture capital in the book. Uh, it's kind of a gap. Um, Latin America, it's interesting. I know it's taking off, um, albeit from a low base, but it is accelerating. Um, I don't know a lot about it, um, but I know that once you've got Mercado Libre and these other you know, famous success stories, every time that happens, it means you've got a bunch of people who saw success from the inside, and they're probably gonna be hooked on that adrenaline, and they're gonna turn around and be either venture investors who back other Latin American startups, or they're going to be founding startups, or, you know, so I, I think it really, I mean, there's no reason why it won't do too well. Um, and then there was a question on the China crackdown. Um, I think, um, so the China crackdown, particularly on things like ed tech, um, is the, maybe the best illustration where, you know, there was a whole sector of um, digital companies offering education online and tuition and all that, um, absolutely flourishing. And then all of a sudden the government changes its policy and says, we don't like this industry. Uh, you basically have to shut down a lot of what you're doing. Um, and just the uncertainty that that creates, uh, the incentives for new investment in some new sector, it's gotta be a dampening effect. Now, the question is not, is it a dampening effect? It's like, how big of an effect is that? How much does that really matter to China's momentum? And I think it's difficult to tell because, you know, if you are a VC in China, it means that you have a portfolio of totally illiquid investments, which you can't just turn around and ignore. Uh, you're stuck there. And if, you go, if, if, if your private thought is you just don't want to do business in China anymore, you're only going to reveal that private thought with a lag of about seven to 10 years once you've run off your portfolio. So obviously these people are not going to announce to the world that they hate the Chinese government when the Chinese government is still in power to, to clamp down on them. I suspect that the Chinese government remains keen enough on some kinds of tech, um, notably AI, semiconductors, hard tech, um, that there's going to be plenty of VC still in China. Interesting. Okay, I'm going to take some final questions from the online audience. This is from Arnaud Dievre, PhD student at LSE. 
the US federal state has been an early investor supporter of breakthrough technologies, sometimes much earlier than VC, internet, jet engines, genome sequencing. Isn't the state the ultimate venture capitalist? <laughs> Then we will go to Lucy Fan, GHS. How do you think venture capitalists will respond to rising uh, global inflationary pressures? And lastly, this is from Titus Willem. There is a Matthew effect on VC. The rich get richer. There are a few mechanisms, including network resources of established funds, their ability to attract funding to their companies. Do you think this trend is accelerating? Based on your interviews, is this effect operative across borders within American VCs increasingly active and successful in Europe? Okay. Okay, so on the rich get richer thing, if I understood the question right, I mean, I mean, basically, it's completely true that venture capital, uh, you know, creates enormous windfalls um, for both the VC investors and for the successful startup uh, founders. And these people get immensely rich, and uh, they're going to be way off in the top 1%, and it's going to exacerbate inequality. There's no getting around that. Um, I'd say two things about it, though. One is that um, there are people who are very, very rich uh, based on rents, and there are very, people who are very, very rich based on production. Uh, and uh, the, the, the incomers have got there because they've produced something new. And that's a lot more attractive, I think, than people who either inherited a fortune or, you know, are running a sort of incumbent business that is probably protected by all sorts of, you know, lobbyists and, and all that stuff. Um, and if you care about mobility, in other words, not just equality of income or wealth, but, but like how much that changes from one generation to the next, by its nature, the creation of a new startup with a new bunch of uh, challengers who then get very rich in the process is creating a lot of mobility. And, by, and, and there's a book by... Philippe Aguillon and a couple of co-authors that documents the way that this is not just true of the startup founders, but actually everybody at a startup gets paid better than they would have done somewhere else if the startup is successful. Why? Because when the startup is growing absolutely headlong rate, you can't afford to have low morale, low attendance rate, any sort of mess up at any level of your operation. You just want to grow as fast as possible. And so you pay everybody in the organization really well to make sure they don't leave you, to make sure they're not pissed off. You know, what you really, really pay them. And, and that's just a sort of, you know, that's what happens with a lot of momentum. So, so startups do create inequality and a kind of first cut kind of view, but it also creates mobility and, um, And it's not rent-based inequality. And also, if you care about the inequality, which I actually do, I think you address that through the tax system, not through, you know, mucking about with the thing that's creating a lot of innovation. Mm -hmm. um, VCs and global inflation, well, you know, the main channel there is simply that high inflation is going to mean that central banks raise interest rates, which is going to mean that, you know, asset prices are going to correct Um, which is going to mean that the later stage VCs are going to have to reprice their deals, but the early stage ones won't care, as I said earlier. Um, and now the federal and, the, you know, is, is, is the government the main venture capitalist? This is a great question. Mm. Um, so let's take the internet, right? This is like most people's absolutely favorite exhibit for why innovation really comes from the state. It's a terrific example because what it shows is that The government did create the early internet because it wanted to have a fail-safe communication network in case of a nuclear strike. The number of people using the internet at the point when the government was in control at its peak was probably 50,000. I mean, it was a thing where you were not allowed on if you were a private company. No commercial activity was allowed on it. You couldn't even be on it if you were a scientist, an engineer, but not employed at an accredited government organization or university. So if you were a PhD student at Princeton and you finished your computer science PhD and you were having a great time on the internet up until then, and then you went to work for a private sector, you know, Boeing or whatever, all of a sudden you lost your internet access. 
because you were not allowed on. Then there came a point where all these engineers who had been you know, getting the benefit of the internet before wanted to con continue to be connected afterwards. And so there was a kind of hobbyist organization called UUNet, uh, which was set up with some charitable money from, uh, from this um, sort of loose association of coders uh, to start hooking up a few of their buddies who had gone off to work for Boeing or whatever, right? And then one day, a venture capitalist discovered these guys and said, I think I see an opportunity. And they put a bunch of money into UUNet. They helped UUNet to scale up the operation and start connecting lots and lots and lots of people. And that is why the internet went from 50,000 people to everybody. So in other words, yes, the government created the internet in so far as one thinks of the internet as, an organ as a thing for 50,000 people. The commercial internet, the thing that we recognize today is the creation of venture capital. People don't know that, but read my book. Okay, very good. <laughs> That's a good point to end on. Sebastian, thank you for a thoughtful conversation and thoughtful answers to all these questions. And most importantly, thank you for devoting five years of your life to <laughs> writing the definitive book on the history of venture capital. And I hope it sparks a lively debate about its role in our economy. Uh, just a reminder for those who are interested, uh, books are available uh, outside of the theater, but I hope you will join me in thanking Sebastian for a wonderful talk and, uh, and, and a really interesting book. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.